My title for you today is The Rules of War. The Rules of War. As long as humankind has existed, there has been conflict, either of a smaller or a greater degree. We have historical records of tribes, clans, people groups, and nations resorting to battle for land and territory, for possessions, for self-preservation, for respect, for love, and many other reasons, some justifiable, some unjustifiable, but whether or not they be one of those, this much is true. History shows us that humankind has had conflict. In the Christian worldview, war has been a topic of discussion and debate for a long time, but we aren't necessarily against war, though we certainly aren't for war. Since Jesus said to turn the other cheek, should Christians support war? That's a good question. It's a relevant question. For my part, the answer is simple, yes. For the right causes, for the right reasons, I do believe that there is such a thing as what we would call a just war. If a legitimate government considers war as a last resort and every other option has been exhausted, if the cause is just and the goal is righteous, then there are occasions, I think, biblically and philosophically speaking, in which a war can be just. Nevertheless, there's a further distinction here, and that is this. We probably aren't talking about war in general in Deuteronomy chapter 20. But instead, we're probably talking about what is called holy war. In the Old Testament, there's an element called holy war. You see, the people of Israel were God's method and means of judgment against the godless nations. One author writes, quote, Deuteronomy of all the books of the Old Testament, contains a great deal of information about the discharge of holy war. An atmosphere of war permeates the whole book. It is a pressing concern of the writer that Israel should maintain her existence in the face of foreign nations. Well, you might say, Joe, how's this different than, say, an Islamic jihad? And that's a great question. The answer is simple. Israel's holy war was connected to its land. Israel was forbidden to be offensive. They were instructed by God and commanded by God to be defensive. In fact, a couple of chapters ago, we learned that when the king of Israel was to take the throne, he was forbidden by God to go to Egypt to buy horses. Well, you know what horses are. Horses are an offensive weapon in warfare. And God did not want his people to be offensive. He wanted them to rely on him and his promise and ability to keep the covenant. We don't read of Jewish suicide bombers, by the way. We don't read of Jewish pockets of people popping up in different cities and nations among indigenous peoples and taking over. 
And what's more, you don't read that of, say, Indian people or Japanese people. I think this is something that's happening around the world, and we need to open our eyes to the reality of the infiltration that's taking place of a harmful worldview and philosophy. But when we're talking about Deuteronomy chapter 20, we're talking about a particular group of people who exist on a particular land and who have warfare for a particular reason. Our worldview matters. You know what a worldview is. When you take everything that you believe, everything that, you taught to, that you've been taught to believe, everything that you believe that you've read and heard, everything that you've thought through, the sum of all of that information informs your worldview. In other words, the way you see the world is a result of the information that you agree or disagree to. So some people don't agree with you on this subject or on that subject, and it's because their worldview differs from yours. And it's a result of the fact that they believe information different than you do. Well, our worldview matters. And this morning, we're looking at the rules of war, particularly as they're seen in Deuteronomy chapter 20, but also in general, when it comes to these three points I want to share with you today. The expectation of conflict the expectation of resistance, and the expectation of the future. I love a good fight, so let's get started. First of all, I want to share with you, from a biblical worldview, the expectation of conflict. This is found in the first paragraph, verses 1 through 9, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, the expectation of conflict. If you look back at your text, please say amen if you do so. Look at verse 1 for me, and you'll see that the very first word is what? When? This is the first thing that I want you to note under this heading of the expectation of conflict, namely, conflict is a part of life. Conflict is a part of life. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1, doesn't say, if you go out to war. God says, when you go out to war. Which is to say, it is not something that might happen, it is something that will happen. Eventually, to one degree or another, conflict is a part of life. Indeed, war is an inescapable part of life. The real tragedy isn't that conflict exists, something we all may deal with from time to time, but that sin has affected our approach to conflict. So that when we approach conflict, we don't do it in a healthy manner. We do it in an unhealthy manner. We don't do it in a constructive manner. We do it in a deconstructive manner. We all have conflict in our life. But not all of us deal with it in a way that is productive. There are some things, friends, that are well worth the fight. But we lie down instead. And there are some instances when we should lie down and instead we get up and fight. That's something we're going to talk about a little more as we move further. But the first thing that I want you to note in Deuteronomy chapter 20 is this. Conflict is an inescapable part of life. Paul once said that we must fight the good fight of faith. Which means that we aren't to be belligerent and violent and disagreeable 
That's not what that means. But as people of faith, we aren't to be afraid of conflict. We should not be afraid of conflict. And in this case, we learn that the priests stand up, and and we have this uh, teaching in the first couple of verses of Deuteronomy chapter 20. Why shouldn't we be afraid? It says, because the Lord your God is with you. Because the Lord your God is with you. That's what the text says, church. Say amen if you're listening. Never gauge a conflict by your opponent. Always gauge a conflict by the God who is on your side. Why are we guilty of this so often? When we see a conflict, a hardship, a difficulty, and we start measuring and weighing and trying to decipher whether or not we can overcome this conflict, this hardship, this difficulty, that's not the question. The question is, can God overcome this conflict? This hardship, this difficulty, Deuteronomy chapter 20 says, don't be afraid. Because when you have the conflict, know that God is on your side. There are a handful of verses that I want to share with you, and I want to share them with you because it says here in verse 2, when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and say to them, the priest are supposed to do a pre-war pep talk. A pre-war pep talk. So, so I'm going to be your pre-war pep rally leader for a minute and share a few verses that you need to write down. Okay? Listen to these, wor- these verses as the priests are supposed to work up these men to a holy fever with excitement to do battle because of these truths. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the light of my life and the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. How about Romans 8, 31? If God is for us, Who can be against us? Or 1 John 4, 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We must pray for wisdom and we must pray for discernment when it comes to putting people in harm's way. When it comes to things like conflict, things like war, There's no doubt about that. But as none of us is operating in any particular office at this moment, I want you to hear this application. It doesn't matter what you might face in this life. God is greater. And the verses that have been given to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God do not say, be afraid. They say, don't be afraid. They don't say, hesitate. They say, go. They don't say avoid conflict with every fiber of your being. They say, fight the good fight. God is with you. But we need to pray for wisdom and discernment so that we can ascertain when to do what. The second thing I want you to note is this. We learn that no one should be required to fight all the time. This, again, is under the expectation of conflict, first point. 
in verses 1 through 9, the second thing that we should note is that no one is expected to fight all the time. This responsibility falls not on the priests who have given the pep talk sermon, but rather on the officers. After the priests have gotten up and they preach a loud, fiery sermon and get everybody good and, good and ready to go, the officers stand up and they have a procedure they are to follow from God. And the procedure is simple. They are to inquire and discern whether or not soldiers qualify for any exemptions. And there could be a variety of reasons for these, as is seen in our text this morning. So I'm just going to quickly list some of the exemptions as they are listed here in Deuteronomy 20. Number one, a soldier can be exempt from war if his home construction is incomplete. If his home construction is incomplete, he can be exempt from war. And essentially what that is, friends, is just an issue of safety. Now, in the text, it says if he hasn't dedicated his house yet. We're just going to sort of simplify this idea and just say his house construction is not done yet. What would it mean if God said, I want him to go to battle, and he left his wife and his children in an unsafe environment? So God instructs the officers, the first exemption is this, tell anyone if their house hasn't been completed yet, they can stay and complete their house. And uh, The second um, exemption is an untasted vineyard. An untasted vineyard, a newly planted vineyard, couldn't be enjoyed for years. It took it about three years for a vineyard to begin to produce well, and then the first year of crops were dedicated to the Lord. So we're really talking about the fourth or fifth year by the time this person can enjoy it, but that's not the point I want to make. The point that I want to make is God says, I want you to enjoy this before you go to battle. If someone has planted a vineyard but has not tasted of the vineyard yet, they're exempt. Is it curious that God is so interested in us having simple joys and pleasures in life? I mean, you realize he gave you taste buds, right? You're not a crocodile. You don't just simply eat without taste until you're full. You eat things and you say, oh, that's delicious. Oh, I really enjoyed that. And God is saying, I want you to enjoy the fruit of the vine before you go to battle. Lest you go to battle and you die and you never had that first you know, Cabernet. I want you to enjoy the simple things in life, God says. War is serious. Conflict is serious. It's unavoidable and it will always be present to one degree or another. But you know what else is serious? Pleasure. You know what else is serious? Joy. And God is laying out exemptions for soldiers, and they're listening. Here's the second, uh, third um, exemption that is noted it's marriage. If they just got married, if they're betrothed to a woman, but they have not been with her yet, they have not consummated the marriage, and war has happened then they can stay. Later, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5, that's just four chapters later, it says, for the year. So, so if you are engaged to be married and war begins, you are allowed to finish this marriage and consummate the marriage and stay for a year. What's interesting is, if we do a little bit of cross-referencing, 
Then we read Numbers chapter 1. In Numbers chapter 1, it says that soldiers were qualified for battle at 20 years old. And if we take Numbers chapter 1 at face value, then this guy in Deuteronomy chapter 20 is 20 years old. What do, you, what do you do with this? Is this one of those verses you go, yeah, but. I don't have sons. I have daughters. And I wouldn't trade my daughters for 10 sons. Although some of you have amazing sons. But I don't want your sons to be boys. I want your sons to be men. And men do not postpone adulthood. It is a curse on our society, a virus that has been spread and caught. And so some of you have daughters who are single, but it's not because they aren't beautiful, intelligent, spiritual, gifted. It's because there's no men. There are no men around. They're busy living off their parents and playing video games. Waiting on financial stability, whatever that is. Waiting on the degree. Waiting on this, that, or the other thing. Don't postpone what something that is necessary and good in God's eyes for something that is necessary and good in your eyes. And mom and dad, don't fall for this trap where you give permission to your children to not grow up because it is the common denominator today. If we look at what's happening in the Bible and you say, oh, you know, they're still young. They're 24. No, they're four years late. Biblically speaking. And is 24 still young? In 2023, absolutely. 24 is about 14 years old as what it used to be. And you're only upset with me because I'm telling you what you already know. Gentlemen, you've got to decide if you're going to be men. Once you decide whether or not you're going to be a man, you won't postpone masculinity because part of being a man means you don't postpone things you get it done that's what it means to be a man it doesn't matter how difficult it is you get it done why because part of being a man is having an awareness of this fact in life there will be conflict men deal with conflict you know why these boys are growing up and they're perpetually stuck in adolescence because they don't want to deal with conflict you know why there's people standing on 184 and US 1 asking you for money? Because they want your conflict to be money in their pocket. We don't want conflict. And I'm not saying if you're 21, you're late. That's what God is saying. I'm not necessarily saying that. 
<laughs> as your pastor, if I were to sit with you and, and hold you under my arm and speak kindly and softly into your spirit, I would say, where are you in your life? The assumption in the scriptures is that at 20, people would be married because at 20, they had been prepared for marriage. If you're 19 and you have not been prepared for marriage, please, God, don't get married by next year. So I'm not saying you're late, rush, forget everything. I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying, however, is this. Do not put off what God says is good. Proverbs chapter 18 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and gets favor from the Lord. Now, I'm not speaking to any of you women right now. I'm speaking just to you men. It's time for masculinity to find its way. It's time for masculinity to shine again, to pave the road, to lead by example, to stand in the gap, to fill the void. This is what masculinity is about. And ladies, do not sell yourself short. It will be worth the wait. If God is not done building your man yet, be patient. You will be far more rewarded for waiting, as difficult as it might be, then you will be rewarded for jumping into a relationship that God didn't tell you to jump into. You don't need that baggage. You don't need that hardship. What I want you to note, though, is as serious as war is, God says, if the young man just got married, let him stay home for a year. Let him love on his wife. Let his wife love on him. Let them establish their relationship together, and then he can go to war later. Now, that was, that's the paradigm of the Old Testament life. It doesn't matter if you're 25 or 35 or you're still single in your adult years. God's will for your life is different from his will for everybody else's life, specifically. But in general, God doesn't want you slowing down. He wants you maturing. He wants you growing. Get a job. Provide for yourself. Provide for those in need. Serve, read your Bible, pray. This is what masculinity is about. Final exemption, cowardice. In the Bible, it says faint-heartedness. It's not about fear because I don't know anybody who goes into battle without fear, right? No one goes into war without fear. That's not what we're talking about here. What I think we're talking about is cowardice. And he says the final exemption is cowardice because although everyone is afraid, if someone is a coward, I don't want that spreading to other soldiers. When the officers have finished giving the exemptions, commanders are to be set over the people. And once this is done, then commanders with the responsibility of oversight over the people are to be set up. There was a tier of authority. It helps us understand this important point. If you want to successfully fight a battle, you have to be organized to succeed. You can't punch the air. If you want to be successful in dealing with conflict or winning a battle, you have to be organized. This leads to our second point. 
the expectation of resistance. The expectation of resistance, this is found in verses 10 through 18. There should be an expectation of resistance. But I want you to note how this begins. In verse 10, it says, When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably, and it opens to you, etc., etc. When you draw near to a city... You should offer terms of peace. In other words, they aren't to be belligerent. They aren't to run around just saying, God's on our side. We're just going to pick a fight with anybody and everybody. You know, with the drop lower shoulder and they're dragging their knuckles. No, that's not to be their attitude. They're not to celebrate this, but to know that if there is a conflict, God is on their side, but they are always to seek peace. And that hasn't changed, church. Conflict might be in the world. It might be an inevitable part of our lives, and it is. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't relish the opportunity to extend peace and see it gained. Of all the people, Christians should be people of peace. Let me share some verses with you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul says, If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, Strive for peace with everyone. Now what some of these verses means, friends, is that you need to go back and listen to our boundaries message from last week. Because what this says is, strive for peace with everyone, which seems to suggest that since you're striving, it's either going to be difficult or impossible with some people. And Paul says in, in, in Romans 12, 18, he says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Which means you might not live with peace when it comes to some people. But as far as your efforts are concerned... They should be efforts for peace. Some relationships are simply not going to be peaceful relationships. You need to know that. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, The servant is not above the master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If our Lord himself experienced conflict in this life, who do we think we are to live a life without conflict? We will have conflict in our lives. That is not the question. The question is, are we commanded to be people of peace or are we commanded to relish conflict? No, but we are to be responsible with conflict. Even still, peace is our calling. There are some situations that are outside our control, though, and while we are aiming at being peacemakers, and as we should strive for peace as far as it depends on us with everyone, there are some relationships and situations that simply will not yield to peace. And when this situation presents itself, we must be ready and willing in God's strength and wisdom and discernment to fight a good fight for faith, to be confident in conflict, and to be strong in the strife. So again, of course, our God is not prompting war. He isn't 
teaching his people to fight no matter what, just be people who are belligerent and angry. God isn't a warmonger. It's important that we note that. But there are times when, for whatever reason, conflict is inevitable. So whether there are occasions in which we gain peace or not, let me remind you of something that I've already said repeatedly. Say amen if you're listening. Conflict is a part of life. Conflict is a part of life. And if you avoid conflict, if you navigate your life, if you make decisions and arrange your circumstances with the purpose of avoiding any and all conflict, you are doing yourself a great disservice because conflict is part of life. From a small degree to a large degree, from verbal to physical, conflict is part of what it means to be an imperfect person living in an imperfect world. But simultaneously, as Christians, as we ought to be submitted to Christ, we should fight and stand up for what is godly and what is good and what is righteous. What distinguishes Christians from everybody else is their ability to fight a fight well, to represent righteousness even in the midst of conflict. And we have seen this demonstrated to us a few ways in the Bible, but I want to share a couple of them with you. One way is interesting to me. It is found in Matthew chapter 8. And in Matthew chapter 8, there's a situation in which a centurion Roman soldier approaches Jesus and he says, My servant is ill. If you say the word, I know he will be healed. And Jesus says, I haven't found faith like this even in Israel. He's a person of faith. And he says, let it be according to your word. And what's interesting to me is that Jesus does not say, since you're a believer, I'm going to need you to leave the army. Another thing that is worthy of consideration is Luke chapter 14, where Jesus gives a parable, and in the parable, he uses war as an illustration. Who doesn't, before going into battle, count how many men he has to decide whether or not he can win the battle? There are other New Testament illustrations. Found in things like Paul, where war and soldiering are used in graphic language to illustrate the point that is trying to be put across. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, be a good soldier of Jesus Christ, for example. All soldiers follow the orders of their commanding officer. We have to use our wisdom here, of course. But ultimately, what I think is important for us to understand can be found cleanly in Ecclesiastes 3.8. In Ecclesiastes 3.8, it says, there is a time for war and there is a time for peace. So we should always seek peace. But if there's ever a conflict, we should leave no doubt in anyone's mind around us that we are able and confident to engage in conflict because God is on our side. God is with us. As Psalm 20, verse 7 says, some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, 
but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, before I get to our final point, let me just say this. We have to be skilled in handling conflict in our lives. If we do not handle conflict appropriately in our lives, we will never be successful. Let me give you an illustration, okay? Your marriage is something that is incredibly important to God. God blesses marriage. God has designed marriage. God sanctifies marriage. But the devil hates your marriage, and the devil hates you. What are you going to do? Lay down and let every tempter and temptation happen to your marriage without checking it? Every financial issue that tempts you to act in an impatient and ugly manner or your spouse to act in an ugly and impatient manner, are you not going to fight a good fight for the sake of your marriage? When you send your kids to school and they come home completely doubting what you've been teaching them for the past 8, 10, 12 years, are you not going to fight for your kids? There are some good things, friends, that will not be granted to you without conflict. If you want that thing, you got to be willing to fight for that thing. No more punking around. No more cowardice. Put your chest out and fight the good fight with God on your side. Because the enemy is not afraid of you. He doesn't need to be afraid of you. He knows who's on your side. He just wants to know whether or not you're going to engage. Are you going to fight the fight for your family? Are you going to fight the fight for your children, for your home? Here's another issue. Sin. Are you going to fight the fight to be holy? Or every time you tempted, do you just give up? Oh, so hard to be holy. I love what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, you haven't even resisted to the point of blood yet. I don't know what that means. But it sounds intense. You haven't even resisted to the point of blood yet. I mean, when's the last time, when's the last time, you know, let's just say for argument's sake, I'm, I'm the best looking guy in the room, so I'll just make, use myself as an illustration. Amen, Henry? Amen. Thank you for the help. Let's just say, for example, that this handsome devonair of a pastor gets hit on by some woman, which is I basically carry a sign around me that says I'm a pastor and happily married for 25 years. This kind of stuff doesn't happen to me. And, and, and let's just follow, follow an illustration here. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying, okay? If a woman were to come on to me, the writer of Hebrews is basically saying, run yourself headlong into a wall. Because it's better for you to bleed and not sin than not bleed and sin. You've got to be willing and ready to do whatever is required of you to stay holy. And some of that means conflict, friends. Some of that means conflict. And I make light of it and ha, 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 you understand. But listen, God doesn't play with holiness. He wants you to be holy. He is making us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And if we are not engaged in conflict against the devil and sin, then we're not doing our jobs. When you go to bed at night, you should be exhausted. When you go to bed at night, you should be wondering, whew, how much did I grow in grace today? 
conflict is a part of life. Thirdly, and finally, verses 19 and 20. I want to talk about the expectation of the future. And just, I don't want to use the word metaphorical, but I think we have a good picture here of what is being talked about in regards to our chronology or the timeline of everything that is being relayed in Deuteronomy 20. So let's close with this idea that I'm calling the expectation of the future. It might seem strange given the way the commands have been presented thus far, but follow me here. Let's read it together. It says, When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, don't destroy the trees. You can eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human? It's not, this is God's way of going. What do the trees ever do to you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy, cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. This is really an interesting point in this passage. First, God refers to the siege as something that takes a long time. A long time. Now, I'm just going to take a quick detour and just say the same if you're listening. You might not win the first time you engage in this conflict, whatever the conflict might be. You might not be victorious the first time you have this conflict that you're thinking of in your mind as I've been talking to you about conflict being a part of life. And you're going, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've had an argument with this person for 10 years. Well, assuming that you're in the right, don't be surprised. Sometimes conflict takes time. Sometimes resolution takes time. Let me put it to you this way. War costs money. War costs resources. War costs lives. And if we're just talking about conflict, then relationships can be damaged and lost during conflict too. How many of us have had arguments, disagreements that were strong enough that to this day we have not reconciled with someone we had a, degree, a disagreement with years ago? Maybe that's justifiable. Paul says, Romans 12, 18, with as much as it depends on you, live at peace with some people. And quite frankly, what that means is I can't have a relationship with that person anymore. There are instances in which that would be the right response. But what I'm saying is this. Any conflict that we find ourselves in, whether as Americans, as a country, or as Christians, as saints, we should always wage war with the future in mind. We should always wage war with the future in mind. God is saying this. Don't cut down all the trees just because you're in a war. Some of these trees can satisfy you and fill you, and this conflict might last a while. You know people like this. You, you got a cousin like this. Every time at Thanksgiving, somebody gets together, you're like, oh, no, he's here. And everybody, it's scorched earth, right? Everybody leaves like, I hate Thanksgiving. Every time that guy's here, he's just argumentative and disagreeable, and he just relishes this stuff.
People who relish conflict, by the way, that's, that's not right. That's, that's, there's a problem there. We, don't, we shouldn't shy away from conflict, but we should aim for peace. But some people don't know how to live in peace. They have so many personal problems, psychological problems, emotional problems, that they're codependent with this stuff. They don't know what to do if something's not broken. So if they walk into a house and everybody's healthy and happy, they kick the dog. They got to break something. They always got to cause problems, these people. They go around, they burn everything and everybody. They don't have one healthy relationship, and they're like, God, God is saying, don't cut down the trees for no reason at all. Don't go scorched earth when you're in a conflict. Be decisive. Plan. Because when this conflict is resolved, and by God's strength and wisdom and guidance, it can be resolved, you have to have a future. Just because you have a conflict doesn't mean you don't have a future, so don't act that way. Carry yourself in conflict in a way that would make God proud. If every time we deal with some kind of conflict, we go atomic. If every time we deal with something, we become explosive. The damage that we're doing is far worse than the help we're contributing. There's people like this, you know, you can't, nobody wants to be around them. We aren't to be like this. When we engage in conflict, as Israel is instructed, when they engage in war, they aren't to just go scorched earth and cut every tree down. I think it's interesting, too, that trees take time to grow, don't they? And I think what we're, hap- what we're seeing so often right now in our own country and in our own culture and our own society is what is echoed in an African proverb that says, if we do not initiate the boys, they will burn down the village just to feel the warmth. Isn't that what we're seeing today? Our country, our society has taken years and years and years and years to grow, to create. And we have people who are burning it down with no care or concern at all. And God is saying, respect the things that took time to grow. Verse 10 says, to offer terms of peace. Verse 19 says, don't destroy everything indiscriminately. As odd as it might sound, when we wage war in any capacity... When we engage in conflict, regardless of the circumstance, we must do it responsibly with an expectation of the future. If we don't, we may win the battle, but the damage that we do en route to victory may preclude us from winning the war. And that is wisdom that we must appreciate from the Lord. If you get into a conflict this week, don't cut down all the trees. To close, let me say this. God often led his people through war, and today, conflict is part of life. That's an inescapable rule 
that each and every one of us is facing. But that doesn't mean that we should view war or conflict through the lens of a worldview that isn't rooted in the Bible. The Bible has a lot to say about how we should deal with conflict and how we should view war. And no matter how you fight, no matter when you fight, no matter with whom, you must do so biblically. Amen? In a way that considers the future and a way that aims at peace.